Welcome to episode 177 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and this is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What happened this week? Yeah, nothing big, you know. <laughs> International epidemic, quarantines, no big deal. Yeah, it was a busy, crazy, wild week. So that being said, it seems like we should just launch right into our usual affirmations and denials. But let's switch it up a little bit this week. Let's start with the denials so we can end on an upbeat note. So what are you denying against? Yeah, so I'm denying against the coronavirus in case anybody has not been up to speed on what's going on in my world. So I live in the great state of New Hampshire, out in the middle of basically nowhere. One of the free or die. One of the normal benefits of living in a rural area is you don't have to worry about things like travel, spread, epidemics, but apparently not. So it's in the news. I'm not saying anything confidential, but a patient or an employee of Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center returned from a trip to Italy and reported to the hospital with symptoms. And tested positive. So a lot of people went into quarantine. Uh, a lot of people who are not sick. There there has been two confirmed cases at Dartmouth-Hitchcock of employees. And then there are now two new cases in the community, which is a little scary. But, you know, this this falls under that our rubric of the five big denials. We had our five affirmations. We got the five denials. And yes. this is one of those, like, denials that come about because of the fall. I suppose all denials in the grand scheme of things come out about the fall, but factually correct. This sucks. Like this is a this is a really frustrating place to live right now because you can see it. Like you know, I, I do my grocery shopping on Wednesday or Thursday night and usually it's like very busy and it was like a ghost town. Like the shelves were picked over, the parking lot was empty. People are people are scared. And, you know, it's okay to be scared. Like I've, I've had to sort of explain this to my employees, like it's okay to be scared, but it's not okay to let fear overcome you and overtake you. And it's been a, right. it's been a very, uh, sanctifying experience so far to sort of like really cast my cares on Jesus. Cause like family members, church members, one Amen. of the, one of the people who tested positive in the community is a member of a Baptist church near us. They unfortunately had to cancel their services this morning. So we're we're near and dear to the concerns that are happening. So if you get a minute, listeners, just pray. Pray for the Upper Valley here. Pray for the people. You know, this is really hard soil and people are scared. And one thing that tills spiritual soil, quite unlike anything else, is the fear of death. And it's out there. Like people right. are afraid. So pray for us. Pray for the gospel to go forth. Uh, pray for safety for me and for my wife, for my family, for my employees. It's it's a scary time. So two things I'd like to say before I get to the coronavirus stuff. The first is that people should at this point expect that you'd come with this kind of denial because, oh, yeah. again, we are one of the top 50 healthcare organizations in the it's U.S. True. We've been nominated for an award of that ilk. So it's true. You knew we were going to bring this up. It's It's part of what we do. It's what makes this podcast so great. The second thing is I'm going to just jump on, if you don't mind, the denial and say that I'm not only denying the virus in the fall. I wish I like what you said. I really wish somebody would like take maybe all of our affirmations and denials and diagram them in those five categories <laughs> so we could just see where they all lie across the cross of this. Yeah, this entire podcast. But with respect to that, I mean, I'm totally with you. And what I want to deny as kind of a tangent is that. There is, at the same time, I see an overreaction, and there's such a unique opportunity for Christians here to have a peace of mind in how they embrace this particular issue that's going on. Because it's what I'm not saying is that it's not serious, and I'm not saying be foolhardy or foolish with the way you approach the infection that's happening, and it's about to spread, I think, in our own country. But there is something to be said for how Christians approach that with a peace and a surety that God is in control of all things. And if you look back through history, Christians have had this unique place and role in times of severe viral infection and otherwise, where, again, being appropriately cautious, they have continued to love others, especially those who are sick. 
Yeah. And so this is, I don't want to get sick. I don't want you for you to be sick. I don't want any brother or sister who's listening to this to fall ill. And yet at the same time, we know that to have the kind of peace where our heads and our wits are about us while all the world is falling apart is to show in a very profound way that we trust in something that's outside of ourselves and that there is a God who loves us, is in control of all things, especially and maybe only if when there is a personal consequence to believing that. Yeah. And so I really believe that just how we handle this, not the sickness, not whether you get it or not, but just how you handle and speak about how you're understanding and processing all that's going on is of so much tremendous value to those who are not believers that I'm denying against on the part of Christians an overreaction where we seem to react in the same way as everybody else is. And yet we at the same time profess to have a loving savior who's taking care of us. So we need to be careful about that. And I really love what you've said and you've written on this already so far and really been a source of encouragement of saying, Lord, help me to live well and to live rightly and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel while the coronavirus and all the eddies of anxiety swirl around us around the globe right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, on the grand scheme of things for most people who get the coronavirus, it's, it's a mild inconvenience, but there's so much fear about it. And, you know, I, I work in a hospital and one of the things that's frustrating to me is, you know, the, the impact that this is having on our ability to care for our patients is probably going to be more of a health impact community-wide than the actual viruses in our community. Because once right. once it once it entered our medical system, we have to exercise this overabundance of caution. And so anybody who has been within six feet of an infected individual is being sent home on a 14-day quarantine. So you as you can imagine, as you know, the first illness comes. There's a there's a ring of uh, quarantine that that individual has had contact with, and then the second infection comes as a result of that. And there's a new ring of quarantine. Some of that is overlapping, but a lot of it is not. And now we haven't had a third case test positive. And at this point, it looks unlikely that there will be at Dartmouth Hitchcock because we got everybody who was sick into quarantine really fast. But now that it's in the community, that's going to keep coming up as people from the community come into the hospital. So each time that someone is exposed and it's known that they're exposed, then they have to go on quarantine. So it, it just is really disruptive to businesses. The economic impact is going to be tremendous nationwide. But as I said, like businesses in the area are struggling right now because people aren't shopping. People aren't really doing the normal economic activities. So it is going to be a pretty big impact. So just listeners, this this really is an opportunity for the gospel, whether it is, you know, you're at the grocery store. I was at Five Guys picking up some burgers and I could hear the people yeah, there. Yeah, you were. I was, yeah. And I could hear the people at Five Guys, the, the workers there expressing concern about the fact that like if the restaurant gets closed down like they they don't get paid during that time how are they going to pay their bills and i took it as an opportunity you know partially as an employee of the hospital i kind of said hey you know i work at the hospital i think it's going to be okay here's here's what i know that maybe you haven't heard yet but then also to say and you know what you know there's a god who's in control of all of this and he is going to take care of what's best for people, what's best for himself and what's best for his church. And, you know, I use that as an opportunity to say, and, and you know what, you can know this God, like you, you can know this God, you know, there's, there's a way for you to be in fellowship with him. And right. you could tell, like the, I think what I said about the, being working at the hospital probably had more impact on them than, than anything, but you could tell that just having someone tell them this isn't a random thing. It's not out of control. There's a predictability to this. There's a known quantity to this. You could see their faces, their countenance just change. So pray, use this as an opportunity to preach the gospel boldly as we all should. Yeah, this is like a really profound opportunity for all of us that would say we really wade into the reformed stream of theology for us, because we talk such a big game. We can always, right. Right, we're all in the same family, right? This is like a family conversation. We're in the living room. We can all be honest that we talk a really big game about the sovereignty of God yep. and how much we love and appreciate that characteristic about him. And so here's the opportunity to live like that actually does matter. Yeah. And to let that shape our feelings and to let that suppress our freakouts. Like this is the time where it actually matters the most. And if we're the kind of people, which we more normally are that say, I oh, don't know, no, my theology totally shapes the way that I believe and how I feel and how I behave. 
then the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So I think yeah. we're, we have a wonderful opportunity here for us all to be uh, good, you know, like reformed theological adults to adult a little bit with respect to our theology and to show that we mean what we say and we're going to act in the way that's consistent with the things that we've been saying all along. Because when you squeeze an orange, you get orange, you get orange juice. So when we get wrung out here in the weeks that are ahead, the question will be, what are people going to see? Yeah. And I really hope that they do see Jesus Christ, that what they see is people that are as strong in their words as they are in the behaviors that express that God is sovereign. So I'm putting that upon myself. Like I've, I've got to be that kind of person. If that's really what I believe, then here's my moment by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to show that that's exactly the case. So it's not like I would wish again up this situation upon anybody. This is a traumatic and tragic event in many ways, as all sickness is as all diseases, all epidemics are. And so at the same time, I love what you said, and many of others have said this, that when we pull death into the conversation, when people feel that they're suddenly actually vulnerable, which of course they always are, but when that vulnerability comes home to nest in their conscience, there is a, their conscious mind that is, there is a unique opportunity to speak the gospel because yeah. there is a new entry point that isn't always present. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it really is. It's it's a fertile ground that most of us have never experienced. And this probably is a, a kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity for most of us. So take advantage yeah, you know of what it. This, yeah, you know what this is like to me? I've been thinking about it this week is it's kind of like, you know how it was like in previous eras. You can't do this anymore, especially not in the United States, but you would have your local gathering of worship, whether that be a church or whatnot, and there would be a graveyard associated with it. In fact, you'd walk through oftentimes the graveyard to get to the church so that this idea of mortality was always present. And this is like that situation. It's like somebody just dropped the graveyard in our normal place of like interaction where we're walking back and forth and suddenly we're seeing the headstones and we're thinking, yeah, this is for real. And that's always the case. But this reminder, this vulnerability is so fresh to some people that it really is a unique opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Well, let's let's get positive here and not positive get for coronavirus. Positive, positive. Yeah. So, how about you start us off again? I'm really curious. Uh, well, do you want to say off the top what category your affirmation falls into? This apparently we only have five. This is a book recommendation. So this is, I guess, it's like <laughs> theology. I, I, this is an oldie but a goodie. There's nothing. There's yes. nothing novel about this. The funny part is, I just dropped like six coronavirus puns in one spot. Yeah. There's nothing novel about this. I'm just I've been listening to this on audiobook a little bit at a time. It's A Body of Divinity by Thomas Boston. Like it's it's just oh, nice. a good classic reformed work. It's it's essentially his commentary on the Westminster catechisms, which is good because you know, you know, we read these, we study these, we talk about them, and I think we have, you know, we have a pretty good grip on what what they mean, but Thomas Boston, you know, is obviously much closer to the divines than we are. And so his commentary and his understanding bears more weight in terms of the under, you know, the original intent of the authors. And so it's, it's just a good book. And I found it, you know, it's incredibly devotional to just listen to this, this man explain the the catechism and what it means to sort of elucidate the scripture references and where, where this doctrine is coming from. So check it out. You can get it pretty inexpensively on audible if you want to listen to it. Otherwise you can get a free, you know, a free copy almost anywhere. I think you pick it up on monergism. If you want to pick up a free uh, digital copy, it's, it's readily available. So body of divinity, Thomas Boston, it's just, it's just super good. It's balm to my soul. I feel like you've actually set me up for my affirmation, which is somewhat related in two ways. One, it has an audio component. And two, I'd like to go on record on this particular episode and confirm that I definitely have no idea anymore what things we've affirmed and what things we haven't. So (laughs) there's a possibility. I have this, this suspicion like deep in my soul, in my inner being that you actually have already affirmed this thing. And so I'm going to jump on that and maybe try to steer it in a direction that is a little bit novel so that we have some nuance, but this falls under the, I feel like now I'm compelled to say what category this falls onto. <laughs> this affirmation falls under the app category. Oh man. Now maybe I'm alone in this, but I've had this feeling recently that I just can't, I just don't have enough time to read the things I want to read. And so I've been learning all this amazing stuff about how our minds are actually able to process the the heard word or just you know just spoken language much more quickly and efficiently than you're able actually to read the same amount of text. So 
that's probably not a surprise to a lot of people because you're probably listening to my voice at like one and a half or two times speed right. and you're still able to discern anything without any kind of like major cognitive dissonance. So that being said, with all that buildup, what I'm affirming is this app called Pocket. And yes. so, yeah, Pocket is great because here's what it allows you to do. It allows you to save articles that you find interesting online, either by the app itself or you can download the, the extension for like Chrome, for instance. It will put them into the app and then you can have the app read the articles to you. So it's yeah. like a way to create this wonderful curated content of the written word and get it spoken to you. And I find that I'm able to actually consume so much more of the things I would want to be able to read, but just don't have the time for it because I obviously can't read like while I'm driving or while I'm cleaning. I mean, you can, but that's tremendously unsafe. <laughs> so, and the great thing about this is when you drop an article into pocket, it gives you the amount of time that it would take for it to read it. So if you even have four minutes, you can drop in there and get an article read to you. I'm just loving this because it's filling this gap where all these things I want to be able to read and I can't just because I can't, I don't have the time and ability to do it at a certain point in time. I can have it read to me. And it is like a computer voice. Like it's a, it's a really good like AI, but it's, it's, you, you'll get over that and get used to it. I think relatively quickly. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is I've already affirmed on this podcast before a complimentary app called Feedly, which allows you to create and curate your own kind of RSS feeds. And through Feedly, you can drop the stuff into pocket. So you can have all your stuff that you normally like to see in Feedly, kick it over to pocket and then listen to it. So I've just been loving like whether I'm on the internet on my computer or I'm on my iPad or I'm on my iPhone in either of those three, I can drop stuff into pocket, listen to it. And I'm just loving having articles read to me. I really think it's fantastic. So I'm pretty sure you affirm pocket before. Yeah, I actually, maybe, I've, I've had this exact same affirmation, including using it as a way to basically turn blogs into a podcast. How dare you, sir? So, but no, it's, it's an affirmation that's worth repeating because I do this too. And, you know, if you have a little bit of like web savvy, you can actually use a, an app called Zapier, which is sort of like a, a low key programming app to, you can, you can basically convert RSS feeds automatically into pocket. So like if you have a, an RSS feed that you know you always want to read, a, a blog you always want to read, you can use Zapier to automatically send those to Pocket so they'll automatically come there. The one thing Pocket's missing that I wish they would add is the ability to just drop an RSS feed into Pocket and have it right. automatically pull everything that you want. Yes, down. Because like Reformation 21, the, the Reformation is 21 blog, I would read everything that comes off there. But there's a lot of times that I forget to check it for a few days and then all of those blogs like i don't have time to catch up on those so right. having the ability to drop those straight into pocket is great and and you know what the the computer voice is really good it is very very easy to listen to it, it doesn't sound too robotic i do have to slow it down usually i listen to podcasts at three times speed and i do have to slow this down to like two times speed because the robot voices gets a little weird at high speeds but yeah i i'm totally with you on this one so this is like one of these strange affirmations and denial sections where it's like on both cases, like what a time to be alive. I know. <laughs> you know, like it really is like it's, it's exceptional and it's trying. And in the midst of all those things, God is always exceptionally good. And I've, I've found this app so useful. And I know that a lot of our listeners are super big readers and this is just a way to kind of like read a little bit more through your ears. Yeah. So it's, I would definitely encourage everybody to go, go grab pockets and just start listening to articles. You will love it. I guarantee it. You will yeah. love it. You know, not to not to make light of a serious situation, but I would be being untruthful if one of the first thoughts that went through my mind when I realized that I might be quarantined was not think of all the reading I can catch up on in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would I would still have to work from home probably because the hospital still is operating and I still even if I got quarantined, it's unlikely that all of my employees would get quarantined. So I'd still have to try to manage them remotely. But just think of all of the books I could get finished up. I mean, I've got a stack on my desk that's probably the height of a small toddler, and I just can't get to it. So it'd be nice to have some quiet time for a change. Stacks on stacks. Yeah. Well, speaking of books, and just before we get into this this version of the book cast, you issued a challenge, an impromptu challenge. I but did. then again, everything we do in this podcast is impromptu because there is zero, and I can't emphasize this enough, 
zero planning it's true that goes in almost every episode you issued a challenge and i want to have you give that challenge again but i want to note that we have a winner yes we're not going to release that yet but we have a winner so there's no need for anybody else to write in because i mean you could but you will not win but remind everybody what was it that you gave us this little challenge or contest so the challenge is episode 179 for us is a very special episode And the challenge was for the first person who could correctly identify why episode 179 is special wins a Reformed Brotherhood beer stein, compliments of the Reformed Brotherhood. So we have a winner. We're not going to announce it yet. We're also not going to announce why episode 179 is special until episode 179, where we will explain why it's special and also announce the winner. But Jesse, I hear you have some not quite correct answers that you wanted to share with us. (laughs) That's right. So in anticipation of episode 179, let's talk about some guesses that were really, really good, but are not the reason. So two in particular, one is from our brother, Chris Bartowski, who said 179 is a prime number. I think that is, so I'm a mathematics person. That is a beautiful answer. I didn't even think about that. Unfortunately, not the right answer, but once, well, he's correct. 179 is a prime number and that's a beautiful thing, but not the reason why. That is interesting. That's pretty high for a, for a, a prime number, isn't it? I mean, there's lots, man, you just, did you just set that up for me so I could just tee off on straight nerdery because that's all I want to do right now. I mean, I know like as you get higher in the prime numbers, it becomes less and less common, like higher in numbers, it becomes less and less common for you to have a prime. That is factually correct. It's, it's not that high for a prime number, but it is, it is unique with respect to like obviously one or two. Yeah. Yeah. So do you know what the only even prime number is? Two. Yes. Yeah. I do know that. (laughs) Well done. So here's one other guess that was uh, so, you know, beautiful, but not correct. This is from our brother, John Larson. He actually writes, my guess would be that episode 179 has not taken place yet and neither has Christ's second coming. So I'd be excited to hear your conversation on his return, new heavens and new earth. And if this is not right, postmarker for the future and I'll enjoy whatever you have for us next. So what I love about this answer is it's, uh, I mean, he, he's right in that, you know, we don't know when Christ's second coming is, and this is also in the future. I love that he parlayed that into a request for us to talk about the new <laughs> heavens and new earth, like adeptly done brother John. Yeah. Kudos to you, sir. Yeah. I mean, by that logic, any episode in the future could match that criteria <laughs> though. So we're in pretty good shape. So. Well, that's what I love about this is he was like, I'm just going to, I know you'll read this email. I mean, we read all the emails, but he's like, I know you'll read this one in particular. And so let me just use this as a way to build a bridge to what I'd like you to talk about. Yeah. All right. So here's another challenge that we will issue. Uh, <laughs> I like this. I like, I like doing oh, these challenges. So now that we have a winner, I would like to hear the funniest the funniest answers to the question of why is episode 179 special and the one that Jesse and I judged to be the funniest will win a reform brotherhood t-shirt. Oh, it's back on everybody. Yes. And we do have both men's and women's t-shirts available. So I'd love to get some funny answers from the ladies as well. Yeah. Sisters, we know you're out there. We know you're listening. You're in the Facebook group. We want to hear from you as well. Yes. So send us your funny answers to why episode 179 is uh, a special episode and the funniest answer subjectively assessed by Jesse and I will win a t-shirt. Let me just say something about that real quick. Maybe we've, I don't know if we've ever formally addressed this, but we've joked about it. We realized that the name of the podcast is somewhat confusing in that it says brotherhood, but we're using that like in the strict Pauline sense, which yes. is like inclusive of brothers and sisters. So That's but we had to choose a name. So it's, it's inclusive. It's not just like dudes on dudes on dudes hanging out. It's, it's for everybody. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Yeah. I really regret actually that I said dudes on dudes <laughs> on dudes. Yeah. Did and, you see my uh, face? It was a little, ew. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. I was bristling as it was coming out and I was like, I need to add more dudes to make it better. And then adding more dudes made it worse. So this, everybody is podcasting once again, without a net, you know, I I can't emphasize enough zero preparation. I think it's probably time for us to share the story of why we don't use the most obvious tagline for the show. (laughs) 
So very early on, we identified that the perfect tagline for the show would be something, and we've used it once or twice, but would be something Wait, are we, akin are to- Are we really doing this right we now? Are, we are. We are. going to tell this story? We totally okay. are. Uh, All right. Here we go. The, the tagline would be something akin to like, your podcasting brothers from another mother. And we we tested that with a few audiences. And the concern was that at one point, the sinful polygamist on Sister Wives <laughs> had used that phrase- and so the concern was that our show would be associated with polygamy. So we don't use that phrase, although it is a it is a great tagline for our show to say you're reformed brothers from another mother or something like that. But out of an abundance of caution, we have quarantined that only to be brought out on special occasions. <laughs> and for the record, we shouldn't have to say it, but let me just say it. There's always a standing denial against polygamy on this podcast. That's true. That is a true statement. We deny polygamy, regardless of what you may have heard from our tagline. Yeah, I don't, I don't want anybody to say like, well, like this is the exact kind of thing the internet is used for. For somebody to write and say, I've never heard them explicitly deny against it, so I can only assume they're for it. That is not the case. Yeah, that's true. Well, now that we've gotten the big things out of the way, we deny global pandemics. We deny outwardly sinful marital practices. Let's move on to our topic. Yeah, let's do it. So we are in chapter 14 on this episode of Dr. Joel Beakey's book, Reform Preaching. And this is, I maybe we say this every time, but... One, great chapter. Two, yeah. I think this is like a really useful chapter. And the title is Introduction to the Dutch Further Reformation. And if you're kind of like the casual listener or kind of casually connected with Reformed theology, or maybe not too familiar with its history, you might say, what do I care about the Reformation that happened in the Netherlands? But this is an informative chapter that really helps to, I think, articulate and enumerate how what's called the Further Dutch Reformation shaped Reformed theology. So this is like a great entry point into some wonderful history that helps us give a further perspective for why things are the way they are now. Yeah, and you know, the, the Dutch Further Reformation is something that most Reformed folk have almost an innate theological understanding of. Yes. Don't have any real historical theological like, understanding of, of the situation. And so sometimes you hear the Dutch Reformation or the Dutch Further Reformation referred to as Dutch Puritanism. It's a very common label. And it's not it's not entirely an inept title for it, an inept uh, description of it, because it shares a lot of the same concerns with Puritanism as far as reforming worship. So this is in part where we see the Dutch church really starts to um, escalate or or advance the regulative principle in, a, in sort of a, a new way that wasn't quite a focus earlier. But there are some very distinct differences as well in that the Dutch Reformation or the Dutch Further Reformation didn't have the same focus on purifying the church that the Puritans right. are, I mean, it's in the name, the Puritans are known for. Because the, the Dutch church, you know, the Puritan Reformation in England it started off because the Church of England was corrupt. And so, you know, the Church of England came about in sort of this pseudo-Catholic way where, you know, the King of England wanted to break from the Roman Catholic Church in terms of affiliation, but not necessarily in terms of theology. And so there's this complex back and forth where the Church of England has some of these Catholic overtones, Roman Catholic overtones that remains that had to be purified out. And that's really what the Puritan movement is about. The Dutch church never had that same thing. So their focus and their understanding and the way that they went about this further reformation, and that's why it's more beneficial to call it the further reformation, because it really is just the continuation of the initial gains of the reformation, right. take kind of taking the next step. So it's it's important to understand this because as Dr. Beakey points out, kind of the pinnacle of the Dutch further reformation is the canons of Dort. It's like the, the single most important yes. or one of the single most important concise doctrinal statements on soteriology in the history of the church as a whole, and especially in the history of, you know, Reformed Presbyterian, Reformed Baptist thought. And all this comes out of this tiny little country, the Netherlands. And that's what's so unique and wonderful about the way God works in this world. We're, we're talking about the 16th, or basically, I guess the 17th, 18th century, actually, right. 17th and, and early 18th century. And like you said, there is a parallel to English 
Puritanism. But what strikes me as something that's really special about the Dutch Further Reformation, and I think really a tangent to our current times, is because it didn't have the same externalities like you spoke about in terms of the political influence of Puritanism in England, it was basically a reaction to the absence of a living faith and desire to make that faith a personal experience and that the holiness of the person would be a central matter of importance. And I see a lot of that coming back into kind of our modern era. Those I think that are coming into the reformed faith, whether that be like the young restless and reformed or others, others, even this cage stage kind of era that everybody goes through to some extent or another is in many ways, kind of this further type of reformation, this emphasis of really working out what it means to be reformed more intensely in your actual own life, in the church's worship, and then in society as a whole. And so that's really what separates the Dutch from the English with respect to how they were internalizing and metabolizing what it meant to be reformed. They had different influences pressing upon them. And so a lot of me resonates with what's being said here. Just the sheer volume of information of reformed theology that was happening in the Netherlands at this time. Beaky writes, and this is just astounding to me, that there were more theological books printed in the 17th century Netherlands than in all countries combined. Yeah. So you see like a people and an emphasis that were hungry for real spiritual living. And I've always thought that is the real value of the Reformed tradition is that it's not just this disassociation or dissonance between what is we give theological assent to, but how that theology actually shapes the way in which we interrelate with God such that the theology itself provides a grand superstructure in which for us to relate better to God because we understand how he desires to be worshipped and understood. And in that understanding propels us into deeper relationship because we're working with the spirit of God in the way that God actually intends. So there was a lot in here just about, I think, in other words, there's so much in this that we should identify with. And there are these touch points, which we regularly know, like the canons of Dort. But beyond that, we should understand why the canons came out of this environment, why God used this particular place, because there were people concerned for his glory and for that glory, how that glory was displayed in just their average everyday living. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's one other element of, of this further reformation that I think bears a little bit of explaining is that in, in England, the main threat, the main theological threat in England was a return to Roman Catholicism for, for most of English Puritanism's history, you know, until we get sort of past like the English civil war that return to Roman Catholicism and sort of the trapping, maybe not formally, but the, the theology of Rome, the, the outward vestments and the outward kind of denial of the regulative principle by introducing foreign elements into worship. That was the primary threat in English Puritanism in Dutch Puritanism or Dutch Further Reformation theology, the primary threat was not a return to Rome, but was actually, if you really want to put it on a spectrum, it was sliding off the other end and like driving right. too far away from what the church had already, the, the ground that the church had already plowed. And this takes right. the form in, in uh, the Netherlands in the time period we're talking about, primarily in the Arminian Remonstrance, which we will definitely talk about. But then even after that, Socinianism, which is almost like, I don't actually think there's that much of a difference between Arminianism and Socinianism in terms of philosophical perspectives. The main differences come in in that Socinianism started to renegotiate uh, Nicene Creed theology as well, in addition to sort of the Augustinianism of the Dutch church at the time. So so the, the way that these two things happened, because a lot of what was going on in England had to do with practice, had to do with vestments and prayer books and uh, candles and actual like elements of experiential worship, the Puritan Reformation focused more on practical practical understandings of how the regulative principle applies. And Dr. Beakey makes this point in the chapter. In the Netherlands, theology sort of kept the place of a science. And that's, I right. think that's part of why theological treatises were printed so much in, in the Netherlands, where we've talked about it in England. They published sermons, and that was the primary publishing vehicle of the Puritan Reformation. In the Netherlands, this was still largely an academic debate within the academy that was spilling over to the church, where in England, it was really more of an ecclesiastical debate that was happening. That's a great point. I, one of the things I think that 
before we get like to the canons and all the amazing stuff that happened there and that was articulated and documented, I love that he emphasizes how, because this is a book about preaching, how all of that shaped preaching. And there was so much in this that I was like, man, he's just, these guys are just diagnosing the state and the status of our times because he mentions that out of this further Dutch Reformation, there was a sense that preachers are not just teachers, but evangelical comforters. I love this idea of evangelical comforters. And he quotes Vodius, or he provides a quote from him that says, ministers of the word should be the best friends of those suffering from afflictions of conscience. For those ought to be above all to be equipped with the gift and art of consolation. Yeah. And he goes on to say that Vodius describes the training of ministers as piety joined with knowledge. Yeah. And I think there's so many preachers that we have today, whether they be in the public eye or not, that famous or otherwise, just common, that are more teachers rather than evangelical comforters. Yeah. Or they're comforters of a different type of degree where they're comforting by way of providing false hope or some kind of sensationalism that makes it seem like all we have to do is just live our best life now. That was like a not too veiled jab at somebody (laughs) in particular. So this idea of having like piety joined with knowledge. So what I wonder in my own life, and maybe as a challenge to those who are listening, is you know, in modern times, the term theology often has this connotation that it is abstract, it's philosophical, and it's irrelevant. And the Dutch saw theology as a vibrant way of life. And I wonder, can we say that about ourselves and our theology? Yeah. That it actually gives vibrancy to our life, not just more eggheadedness, not just more more knowledge, not just we can quote certain things, or perhaps we're better at debates, or we can speak into people's lives with some kind of specificity of detail in theological expression. But does it make us more vibrant followers and more obedient and holy in longing after, pursuing and being conformed to Jesus Christ. That, yeah. I think, is the real challenge that's embedded in the further Dutch Reformation. Yeah. And, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit in the past about some of the differences. We haven't talked at length about it, but some of the differences between almost like the tone or the temperature of the the English confessions versus the, the continental confessions. And the... Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, and the Belgic Confession form the three forms of unity in the Dutch church. And they are much more practical and pastoral and warm. It's funny because it's true that the controversy in England was more practical than it was scientific, and the controversy in the Netherlands was more scientific than it was practical. But the confessions are almost exactly crossed. That the yeah, confessions in England are very technical. They're very they're very focused on doctrine. And that's not to say that there aren't pastoral concerns that shine through, but that's not the way that they're written. They're primarily written as technical documents. But in the the Dutch tradition, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism, what is my only comfort in life and death? Like that's that's designed to start off a person's uh theological understanding with turning to God for comfort, where in the confession in or the catechisms in England, that's not not necessarily the case. And there are pros and cons to doing that. There's a reason that I, I hold to the Westminster uh, tradition versus the continental tradition. We can talk about that at a different time. But it's important as we look at the two, and it's not as though they're contradictory. They're different emphases. They're different uh, focuses. A lot, is, a lot of institutions are actually moving to have, like Westminster, California, for example, they, they require professors to affirm all six of these documents instead of just three or three. But, you know, it's important to note that because a lot of times the, the canons of Dort, the synod, the, the synod rulings at Dort, they're seen as this technical theological document. But if you read them, they're actually really, really involved with pastoral concern. Things like the assurance of salvation. Things yes. like, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I come oh, to yes. have the knowledge of my salvation? How do I come to have right. the joy of my salvation? Um, not that that's not present in the Westminster tradition, but it certainly is not this cold scientific theological document that sometimes people think it is. No, and maybe it's helpful as Beaky enumerates in this chapter to really speak briefly as we get into the canons, because that's one of those things that like we need to recognize is like a major signpost on this road of reformed theology. And so much was accomplished there that really all of us, I think you kind of said this before, implied it at least, that we, we all kind of stand on whether or not we actually recognize that that's what's happened in this particular era. And so the Senate of Dort was 
called to settle, I guess you could call it a raging controversy in the Dutch churches when this professor, maybe people have heard of, called Jacob Arminius, promulgated a theological perspective that departed from the Reformed faith on a number of points. Yeah. And so the Canons of Door are the Reformed answer to the five points of Arminianism. They're really confined to soteriology. But this gets back to what you referenced before, these declarations in the Remonstrants that occurred at, at the Synod of Door. You want to speak to that maybe? I don't know how deeply we want to get into all of those. I do want to say that at the outset here, even if you haven't read this chapter, you should, you will be immensely blessed if you go pick up a copy of the Canons of Door and just read through that sucker because it is glorious. And I think your point will be easily proved when people read through that because they're going to get fired up at the end of it because they're going to say like, there's so much in that that is so practical for just how you understand life, how you see the worldview, how you understand Christianity and the scriptures that it's impossible to walk away from that and not think this is like intensely directed in a pastoral way to the soul. Yeah. And you know, the best copy or the best way to find it, obviously it's free online. You get all sorts of translations. I don't have the title of the book in front of me, but Bob Godfrey, formerly the president of Westminster Seminary, California. I think he's the chair or the chancellor or whatever of Reformation Trust right now. He, he's, or uh, of Ligonier. He just published a new translation and introduction to the Canons of Dort to celebrate the, I was at the 500 year anniversary, whatever, 400 years. And it's very good. It's very good. And he explains the pastoral application. So go pick it up. It's it's not super expensive um, and it's very accessible. And, you know, I, I think it does make sense for us to just quickly go through the five points that the Arminians lodged because You know, I remember I took a course in seminary that was divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And and we read the five points of the Armenian Remonstrance. And if you're not reading carefully, and this was actually intentional, right? So there's lots of good evidence that, that Jacob Arminius and his followers were not exactly dealing honestly with, with what was going on. So Jacob Arminius would teach all this stuff in class, but he didn't publish any of it. And none of it got published until after he died and they found his notes in his desk. He, he would say one thing on doctrinal examination by the synod, and then he would teach a different thing in the class. It's not right. all that different than certain things that are happening at uh, certain reform seminaries in Philadelphia that I won't uh, name right now. But the five points of Arminianism as written in the original remonstrance are actually written to sound like Reformed theology. So if you don't read them carefully, you don't understand the theology, they actually look like, well, what's the big deal? They're not all that different. And one of the things that happens if you talk to an an Arminian, if you listen to like Remonstrance Pod or the Synergist Podcast, which is kind of like an Arminian version of our show. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's the same kind of show. It's just a different theological perspective. They take this approach like, see, Arminius affirms uh, salvation by faith alone and, and, you know, justification by faith alone. But you have to understand the actual theology before you can say that and see why it's wrong. It's also very similar to the way that the federal vision theology works, that on the surface of it, the way the words on the paper, unless you really understand how they're using the words, it doesn't seem all that far off. So I want to run through really quickly these five points. There's a super good summary on pages 254 and 255. And just to prove that this happens, when I was reading this, I I lost count, kind of lost track of where I was in, in the section. And for a second, I thought that I was reading his summary of the response. The response. I had to like go back. I found a spot that I was like, that's not right. And I had to go back and realize I was actually reading the remonstrance. So yeah. I don't I don't know if these were the orders that they put them in or not. I would assume they probably are. But the first is that God, this is a quote, God eternally decreed to save believers in Christ who persevered to the end and to damn unbelievers. On first blush, that doesn't sound like that's that bad. But the right. issue is God doesn't elect specific individuals into those categories. He elects the conditions and then people place themselves in those categories yes. by their faith. So he he elects what the conditions are to be saved, not necessarily who will fulfill those conditions. Point two is that Christ died, again quoting, Christ died for every man so that he obtained salvation for them all, but only believers actually enjoy the salvation. So this is what's called uh, universal atonement or hypothetical universalism is another name for it, although that's slightly different. But the idea is that Christ obtained all the merit to, to save anyone who will come to him, but some of the people who 
uh, could come to him don't actually avail themselves of that. So when we right. talk about election, we talk about Christ accomplishing our salvation from finish from start to start to end, right? All the way at the beginning, all the way at the end, every step of the way, Christ is accomplishing it such that it's a done deal. What the Arminians were saying and what the Arminians in our day are saying is more like, well, Christ fills up the bank account with enough money to pay for all the debt of all of the people in all history. But unless you go to the bank account bank and actually withdraw the funds to apply to your own account, then then you don't actually you don't make use of those funds that are in the account. Point three is that is that man cannot produce faith or any saving grace of his free will. He must be born again by the Holy Spirit. But the sinner may obtain faith and regeneration by hearing God's word, grieving over his sin and desiring grace. So this, again, sounds great. Like, well, man can't produce faith. Well, the issue is that for us, regeneration precedes uh, justification. It precedes faith. Right. God has, regeneration is actually the creation of faith in us. But for the Arminian, regeneration follows faith. So a person goes to hear the gospel preached and based on how they engage their will to either trust what is being said or not trust what is being said, that's what brings about regeneration. So although they right, don't there must produce position there, right. Although they don't produce faith, faith is produced in them as a response to what they do versus the right. correct biblical way where everything we do is a response to the faith that Christ, or that Christ creates through his spirit in us. Point four is that man cannot do any good works apart from God's grace, but that God's grace is not irresistible. And this is actually something that the Lutherans fall uh, a little bit awry of as well, is that as soon as you make uh, the reception of grace contingent on the free will decision of the creature, what you've done is you've created a synergistic model in which we actually do control the flow of grace into our life. In the Arminian model, it's a positive control. Like you have to go get the grace more or less. In the Lutheran right. view, you basically have to not stop it from coming in. But either way, your will is what determines whether or not grace actually has an effect in your life. Right. And then point five is that believers have in Christ all they need to persevere but if they're negligent, they can lose God's grace and fall away. And again, this is this is that thing where they want to say, well, all you need is Christ's grace, but you have to make use of it. So it, it again places perseverance, it places justification, it places regeneration into our control, whether or not we choose to persevere until the end. We have everything we need, according to the Arminian, but we have to choose to make use of it. So again, it goes back to that same perspective of the bank account is full enough to pay for all of the sins of all of the people, but you have to go to the bank to get the money or, you know, the strength to persevere in the faith is available to all, but you have to actually engage that strength and engage that uh, supply in order for it to be uh, efficacious for you. Yeah. My estimation, if you read through these declarations and the remonstrance, which Again, you can find, and I think that in truth, any Arminian that's committed to them would absolutely agree with what's being expressed here. Because again, this is all, for lack of a better way of saying it, like public knowledge. Like there's nothing secretive about right. these particular points here. What's odd to me is in my estimation, these have far more in common with the Roman Catholic perspective than they do with the kind of like evangelical Christian perspective. There's, there's a lot more here that's like connected with them. And that I would say they'd fall into line. And it starts with a statement that seems like almost like universally agreeable, but you'll see, as you kind of noted, it's the working out of that expression, how it actually behaves, where there's a vast separation. There's a chasm between what we believe. And, you know, I think that basically what the, the Synod of Dort and the canons came in to fill a gap with was this idea that, well, does that stuff really matter? And the answer was, it absolutely matters. And it's absolutely pastoral. Yeah. And so like to follow up on your good recommendation, just to note it in case anybody's actually interested. And because we always say we have show notes, but those never actually materialize. It's true. The book you referenced before by W. Robert Godfrey is called Saving the Reformation, the Pastoral Theology of the Cans of Door. And it was just published last year. So yeah. it is brand new. It's like eight, nine bucks on Kindle. That, yeah. I mean, that's fantastic. So yeah. Saving the Reformation, the Pastoral Theology of the Kansas Adore by Robert Godfrey. Yeah. And you know, this is, this is going to be one of those uh, controversial statements that n most people in our audience are not going to be that upset by. 
We may have a few stray Lutherans that still listen to the show once in a while that are going to get really ticked off. But the the real distinction in uh, Christian theology is not between Roman Catholics and Protestants, right? And this wasn't the issue in the Reformation. I mean, it sounds crazy to say that, but the real distinction in theology is between those who believe that God initiates and accomplishes salvation from start to finish and those who believe that God does not. And the the Remonstrance, the Molinists, which was a subdivision of Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, and I would argue, although they don't believe it this way, but I would argue the Lutherans, they all believe in one way or another that God does not initiate and accomplish from uh, salvation from start to finish. Now, the Lutherans, right. the Lutherans, I think this is a ble- one of those blessed inconsistencies that they, they don't understand or they, they don't care about the inconsistency because they're more comfortable with loose ends than we are. They don't understand that the fact that you can stop God from saving you means that you have to engage your will to allow him to save you, that that actually places them on the same side of that distinction as the Arminians and the Roman Catholics. So they're in a slightly different category, but the Arminian theology of the, and this is why he titled the book Saving the Reformation, is because the Arminian remonstrance, they were making a move back towards Rome. They were making a move back towards Roman Catholicism, back towards semi or full on Pelagianism that, and that's why the, the canons of Dort make the association between remonstrant theology and Pelagianism. It's not just a, a, it's not just a rhetorical jab to associate them with Pelagianism. They were rightfully identifying that at the end of the day, the difference between Christianity and Pelagianism is whether or not God accomplishes salvation or whether or not man accomplishes salvation. And on, right. on Roman Catholicism, on Arminianism, arguably, I would say on Lutheranism, arguably, God accomplishes salvation with your assistance, right? God, that's why it's more like semi-Pelagianism is God provides you what you need in the form of aid and then you take care of it. So he either, right. he provides you with grace and you take care of it by cooperating with that grace in Roman Catholicism. God provides you grace in Arminianism and you take care of it by trusting in that grace and by kind of mustering up a trust in that grace and a faithfulness to that grace. And in Lutheranism, God accomplishes salvation with your aid by you not trying to stop him. And, right. and so all of those systems at the end of the day result in this lack of assurance that you, you can't quite deal with if you're in one of those theological perspectives. That is absolutely true. I think there's something in there about magnitude as well, in the sense that I think a lot of those perspectives, what they're saying either explicitly or implicitly in the final analysis is that, well, Jesus came to make bad people good. And what we're saying here is, no, and this is exactly what the canon of Dort's affirm, is that God came to make, to make dead people alive. Right. And so God does not give men the power to believe if they so choose. Instead, he raises them from the deadness of sin and renews their hearts and wills that they will willingly choose to believe. And that's like a huge chasm to cross. Right. I think that's part of the problem is we seem to be speaking the same language in some ways, but there's this sense that really man is not that much worse off because he has the capacity to be able to believe if merely somebody would just explain it to him in decent terms. Right. And that's not what we're saying at all. And that's not what Paul says at all. Like I've heard this argument so many times that like what Paul is saying when he says like we are dead in our trespasses and sins, I've actually heard people say, well, he's being hyperbolic. It's just a metaphor. Right. And I always say, did you think Paul was like a stupid guy? Like not only is he writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but in his own logic, he knows exactly what he's saying. Right. He's not trying to make the case, well, man just was confused and clouded, had a a mind which was distracted and not clear on specific matters of theology. He's saying, you were dead, you were immobile, you were totally incapacitated. And so the only way that you might have new life, just we speak about these dry bones having flesh again coming together, is if God himself breathes into that. And because of that, you can't give yourself CPR. Like, I'm really convinced that that expression that Paul uses of being dead in your trespasses is not his way of just trying to say, well, things were pretty bad for you. Things were hopeless for all of us. Right. And so because they were so hopeless, 
There was nothing that we could do on our own to save ourselves. And so every credit, every modicum of ability must be tied to God himself and not to us. And I think that anybody who compromises that, not only is that like a slippery slope, but it shows that that's just our sinful nature wanting in some way to show that we have some sense of responsibility and accountability in our own saving And that's super harmful. So that's why this is a pastoral document at the end of the day, because it's all about the fact that if I believe in some way, no matter how small, that I did something to ingratiate myself toward God, how is it that I cannot also believe in as a logical consequence that there is something that I could do to cause that to come into jeopardy? Right. And so this is actually the greatest and most significant expression of love that God in his love would predestine us outside of our control in a transcendent way and sign, seal, and deliver us with the Holy Spirit into salvation because he is good and gracious and controls all things, not because we have some part to play in it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when we're trying to talk about these theological distinctions, some of sometimes I'll admit, like sometimes drawing this line and saying there's two types of things, like that's a heuristic device. It's obviously more nuanced than that. But that said, Arminianism and Roman Catholicism rely on the fact that there is some island of either righteousness or neutralness, some island within the human person that can operate uninfluenced by the effects of sin and strive towards God. In Roman yes. Catholicism, it, it has more to do with good works and with initiation. In, in Arminianism, it has more to do with just kind of taking a step in faith towards God, but it's still operating out of an unredeemed part of you or an uncorrupted part of you. It's, it's this part of you that's neither redeemed nor corrupted. Lutheranism does acknowledge that there is no uncorrupted part of you. And this is where they're inconsistent. So I don't want to belabor that anymore, but that brings us to why this chapter is important and how it relates to reform preaching is that for the Dutch uh, reformed and for the Presbyterians and for the reformed Baptists. And I would argue for anyone who is, who is properly reformed in our context. Now the preaching of the gospel, not exclusively, but especially on the Lord's day, by a licensed, yes. ordained man who is properly equipped and properly recognized by the church. And and, and then he says this explicitly, is a channel of God's supernatural power. And, and one of the things that I think is really strong in the, the Dutch confessional tradition, as opposed to the Westminster tradition, is that this is made explicit in the Reformed Continental tradition. That this, you know, whether it's the Second Helvetic Confession, which says that the word of God preached is the word of God. Right. It's right. it's not just someone explaining the word of God or expositing the word of God, but the preaching itself is prophetically the word of God in a different sense than the thus saith the Lord prophets of the Old Testament or the thus saith the Lord apostles of the New Testament. But the faithful proclamation of the word of God of the scriptures on the Lord's day, especially on the Lord's day is God's means to bring about that restoration of life that you're talking about. The, the CPR that God utilizes, the, the, the defibrillator shock panels that, that starts the heart of the dead man, is the preaching of the word, particularly right by an ordained individual on the Lord's day. And that, that's what we need to understand. That's where it comes into this preaching. And, and you know, you've preached on occasion, I preach on occasion, uh, kind of lowercase p, because neither of us are or ordained. But when you and I that's step into correct. the pulpit... There's a, there's a gravity and a reality that as someone who is bringing the word to the congregation, I either have the ability to bring a false word and operate as a false lowercase p prophet, or I have the ability with God's help to bring the true word of God, which is efficacious for salvation for those who hear. Yes. That's a huge, uh, huge task. And it's a huge privilege, but to recognize that that's the way that God brings salvation to his people. Whether it's justification or sanctification, that's the primary vehicle that God brings salvation to his people. That's a huge thing for us to remember. And I think that is probably the most distinctive reformed point that one can make. Right on. You're exactly right. And as Beaky draws that this chapter to a close, he says that very thing. He has a heading under which he, he really kind of tries to flesh it out. And the heading is preaching is the channel of supernatural power. I love that. I mean, that's just so 
so basic and precise that I thought it, it might shock us a little bit that it is the, the preaching is the channel of supernatural power. And he goes on to say, as you've kind of already articulated, that God does not save sinners against their wills, but what he does instead is he saves their wills, right. indeed their whole souls, yep. from the reigning power of sin. This is the problem we have, is we team, seem to think about the person as a, this some weird like bifurcation or distinction that what God is doing is saving a person. And so therefore, somehow the person can't be in juxtaposition to the will. What God is doing is saving the will. And this is so intuitive to us that like, if you're a person that is a parent, if you have children, then you already know this because you know that your children will themselves to do things that are dumb. Yeah. And so the most loving thing that you can do is override that will. Like, don't jump off the couch head first like that. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's so strange that when it comes to spiritual matters, that we'd be so indignant as to say, no, I know what is best. And I don't want God to ever override that because that would in some way make me less human. That is a nonsensical argument. Yeah. It's certainly not an argument that displays that God is loving. He'd be actually the exact opposite if he wasn't willing to do that. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we need God to do is to save the thing that we are so stubborn and stiff-necked against, which is we think we know the best way. Yeah. And so when God saves that, not the person, he saves the will. And so doing the will and transforming the heart, then of course we come to Christ. We're suddenly with eyes opened, as it were, obtaining in advance by faith the beatific vision so that we can see how beautiful and glorious everything is that God is. And so we're drawn to him with that irresistible grace. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- this this chapter, you know, it, it's interesting because there was the chapter on the Directory of Public Worship, and then there's this chapter that is more or less on the Canons of Dort. And right. Beaky is using these two chapters in this really brilliant way, I think, to show and to demonstrate the theological in- underpinnings of everything else he's saying about reform preaching. So you have this introductory section where he's kind of explaining what experiential preaching is. You have these historical snippets and you have these two chapters that underlie this theological foundation for how it is we preach the regular principle of worship and why it is we preach because preaching is God's chosen means of salvation and, and worship is a vehicle of of God communicating that grace to us through the, through the preached word, through the singing of Psalms and hymns and songs and and through the ministry of God's ordained agents. It really is, I think kind of a brilliant way to put this book together. That is absolutely beautiful. I, I feel like I, before we end this episode, I need to admit something that's connected to the Netherlands. So one of the times in my life, like I can count on one hand that I've been the most panicked happened when I was in the Dutch country land. So briefly, my undergraduate degree is in international business. And so that meant that the program of study that I had required me to go abroad to study. And I was with a group of students in the Netherlands, which was an amazing experience because it was like everything in Sound of Music, like on steroids. (laughs) And they actually rented bicycles for us. So like we would go everywhere on bicycle. And so one night after a particularly long day of studying, I decided to go out and just ride kind of like extemporaneously into the the Dutch country land. And in so doing, I turned into like what I can only describe as like a Dutch development. I mean, everything there is Dutch. So it, I guess just a normal <laughs> development, just a development of houses, like very classical houses. And I quickly realized I was, I was totally lost. Like I got completely turned around. It was like one of these insanely large, like circular developments. I couldn't find my way out. And I started to panic because it was getting dark and because I don't speak the language. And I was like, I'm not sure how I'm going to try to communicate to somebody like where, who I am yeah, and where it is I'm supposed to be because I don't even really know the place that we were staying. It was like kind of like a, a student compound, like a retreat center off somewhere. And so I, it's one of the few times in my life that I can remember being like just explicitly and outwardly panicked, like just writing. And if you've ever been lost and you, the panic just makes your lostness worse because you're just you're not thinking about where you've been. You're just trying to turn down all these streets. And so by God's grace, I found the way out, like by pure accident, which is to say that God himself led me out. But every time I think of the Netherlands, I think of, I get like this little pit in my stomach of being lost on a bike in this weird like countryside and not knowing how to get out of like a Dutch development. Like we're talking about like like traditional, like thatched roofs, like it was beautiful. But in that moment, it was just like a straight panic. I was like, this is where I live now because I'm not going to be able to get out. I should, I should just go have a family adopt me. 
That's funny. Yeah, I don't know how to top that story. <laughs> I was waiting for it to make like the theological pivot and it just didn't. Well, here's here's the theological pivot because now I'm going to force it because you threw it out there. And and that is, I feel like honestly, and, and this is no joke, though it's going to sound like one, is that's a bit like the Arminian perspective. It is circular. It, it causes you to get lost in the own argument and self-referencing. Yeah. And so this idea that somehow we have to, by our own theological and spiritual bootstraps, pull ourselves up to cooperate with grace is against everything that Paul says. And that's what makes this thing, again, so beautifully pastoral because it releases people into the full scope of the scriptures, which says God has done it all. Jesus has paid everything. Yeah. And he never delivers up the baby to be left on the doorstep. Yeah. And so we've talked before about what it means to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is a separate issue here. What we're talking about, the fact is that God is faithful to his promises, that the death of Christ is sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. Yeah. And that he has in mind those whom he chose to save, because if he saved just one, that would be the most like cosmically big expression of grace that ever existed. And so for him to save any is just proof that he is a God who loves. Yeah. Well, that's about as good a place to end it as anyway. <laughs> so next week, we're going to be uh, doing a topical episode. I don't know what it is yet. No, it's question cast. It's question cast, but that we never know what it is. Are we doing, oh, okay, are we doing a full episode sorry. on one topic? Are we doing a bunch of little topics? We never know. We never know until we get there. Who knows? Who knows? There's questions abound. And before we go, you should remind everybody, what is the second challenge that you issued earlier in the episode? The second challenge is now, I would love to hear the funniest answers for what is significant about episode 179 of the Reformed Brotherhood. Why is episode 179 a special episode? So give me your funny answers. The winner, which is subjectively assessed by me and Jesse, don't call your lawyer. We're, you know, don't don't at me. The winner gets a Reform Brotherhood t-shirt. And it's going to be good. I'm excited. I, I'm waiting for your funny answers, folks. So am I. Info at reformedbrotherhood.com. All right. Well, Tony, until next time, love everyone. Did you just screw no. up our tagline? <laughs> I could fix that okay. in post, but okay. I'm not going to. Okay, 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 okay. So here's the thing. <laughs> I, halfway through, I was I, I knew we were drawing to a close, which is going to be delayed because I'm talking now. But I got excited because I realized, like, so you, you ever start to formulate a sentence and your brain is having a whole nother thought process at the yeah, same time? I did it last week. I started to realize that I haven't given the, the close. Like, I haven't given the, like, antiphonal call in quite some time. And as that thought happens, the other portion of my brain that was providing the words just shut down. <laughs> well, this is why you don't get to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've lost, I've lost the privilege. It's I, I turn it over to you, brother. No, no. After you, my friend. No, no. I honestly can't remember what it is. My mind has totally <laughs> left me. All right. Well, until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. That was it. <laughs> Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood.